It's well known that the Buddha said, I care about one thing and one thing only, and that is suffering and the end of suffering, or suffering and its end. And I think it was very compassionate, you know, very, very deeply compassionate expression of the Buddha's concern for all humanity, for all of life. But sometimes I think we don't appreciate the subtlety of that because sometimes Buddhism gets criticized for so much emphasis on suffering and dukkha. You know, we're always looking at suffering, you know. It's so much dukkha all the time. You know, what about some pleasure? What about some joy? But the subtlety of the Buddha's teaching is actually that it's all about happiness. It's all about pleasure. It's all about joy. And it's in, if you read the text, you can hear coming through how the Buddha really wants to increase our pleasure. Because mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're happy and you're feeling easeful, it's pleasurable. You feel that pleasure. It's not that we're trying to get away from pleasure. That can be interpreted through this emphasis on not grasping and not getting attached to things. But it's really very, the teachings are very much pointing to increasing our pleasure. And tonight I want to uh, uh, present a, one of the what, discourses uh, from the Majjhima where the Buddha really is uh, talking about how we can decrease our pain and increase our pleasure. The words are really dukkha, decreasing our dukkha, our, our pain, our suffering, or that quality of unsatisfactoriness, and, and how to increase our sukha. And sukha is the word for uh, pleasure or happiness, joy, bliss. And so those are the words that uh, are, are in the, the Pali words that are um, translated in this decreasing pain and increasing our pleasure, or sukha, happiness. And I like this um, discourse a lot, too, because it really, you know, it really shows that even 2,500 years ago, it's so clear that people were dealing with exactly what we're dealing with. I mean, that's why the teachings are so relevant for us, because they're really talking about the human mind, the tendencies of the human mind. And you'll see, um, as you hear this, that it's really, there's an, it's like timeless. The teachings are timeless. It's as if the Buddha was teaching today. And this is um, from uh, Discourse Majjhima Nikaya 46, which is called The Greater Discourse on the Ways of Undertaking Things. And it starts like this. The Buddha says, Bhikkhus, for the most part, beings have this wish, desire, and longing. If only unwished for, undesired, disagreeable things would diminish, and wished for, desired, agreeable things would increase. 
This is a, this is a translation from the Pali. <laughs> is it any different than what you were looking at today? No. And then the Buddha goes on, he says, yet although beings have this wish, this desire, this longing, unwished for, undesired, disagreeable things increase for them, and wished for, desired, agreeable things diminish. Now, bhikkhus, what do you think is the reason for that? And the monks reply, our teachings are rooted in the Blessed One, guided by the Blessed One. It would be good if the Blessed One would explain the meaning of these words. (laughs) (laughs) Having heard it from the Blessed One, we will remember it. (laughs) You know, so it's such a simple kind of inquiry. You know, why is it? Why do the, the things that we wish for diminish and the things we don't wish for increase? And so this is what this um, teaching is about. He, the Buddha says, then listen, bhikkhus, and attend closely to what I shall say. And essentially what the Buddha goes on to talk about is that people don't know what things to cultivate and to follow and what things not to cultivate and not to follow. He, so he, he gives a teaching on four ways of undertaking things to really bring this out. So the first one is there is a way of undertaking things that is painful now and will ripen as pain in the future. He says this is like horrible tasting poison. He says it's dukkha now, dukkha later. <laughs> If you take that, it's horrible at the beginning, the middle, and the end. He said the second way of undertaking things is there is, a, there is a way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and will ripen as pain in the future. And this is like taking sweet-tasting poison. It's sukha now, but dukkha later. And then the third way... He says, there is a way of undertaking things that is painful now, but will ripen as pleasure in the future. This is like taking horrible or bad-tasting medicine. It's dukkha now, but it's sukha later. And the fourth way, he says, there is a way of undertaking things that is pleasurable now and will ripen as pleasure in the future. This is like taking sweet-tasting medicine. It's sukha now and sukha later. Isn't this the one we want? (laughs) How do we get that? You know, that's sukha now, sukha later. But this is actually what the Buddha wants for us, is encouraging us to understand through our own investigation and deepening of our wisdom, because... It's possible to have sukha now and sukha later. So he has these wonderful similes for each one. So the first one, um, dukkha now, dukkha later, he says, um, bhikkhus, suppose there were a bitter gourd mixed with poison, and a man came who wanted to live, not to die, who wanted pleasure and recoiled from pain, And they told him, good man, this bitter gourd is mixed with poison. Drink from it if you want, 
And as you drink from it, its color, smell, taste will not agree with you. And after drinking from it, you'll come to death <laughs> and, or deadly suffering. And then the man drank from it without reflecting and did not uh, let go, did not relinquish it. And as he drank from it, its color, smell, and taste did not agree with him. And after drinking from it, he came to death or deadly suffering. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is painful now and ripens in the future as pain. So what does this really mean for us? Very directly, when we look in our own experience, I think that as you hear it, you can start to get a sense of what this might be. But it's really the suffering that leads to more suffering through the compulsion of our habits, the habits of mind where we're not really reflecting, as he uses in the simile, not reflecting or not letting go. We're just followed through, followed, followed with our habits, the unautomatic where, where we're not ter- there's not the, the ability to turn the attention back and reflect on what, what's, what, what's happening when I say this or do this or get involved with this. It's really from a place of pain, confusion, that one acts out in ways that actually causes more pain, not only for oneself but for others. To look at this, we really can look at any of the five precepts. You know, we have these five guidelines in which we call the foundation of our practice. And these five guidelines of of not killing, not stealing, not causing sexual harm, uh, not using uh, wrong speech, and not engaging in uh, drugs and toxicants that cloud the mind. When we look at those that we can see that from a place of confusion, people act out in ways that they break these. They, they don't break them because they actually maybe not have taken them on, but people kill people. From a place of pain, killing happens. From a place of pain, stealing happens. Stealing out of this idea that if I get that thing, it's going to make me feel better without really understanding that it actually causes more pain for us. That if I speak with anger, if I'm speaking out of my anger to hurt somebody because they hurt me, I, I, I feel more pain. I'm suffering more. It doesn't relieve my dukkha in any way. There's no resolution in that. There's, there's no way out into uh, more uh, a happy or peaceful mind. I remember um, when I had taken on as a practice a number of years ago when I was really examining my speech, taking on the, the precept of wise speech. And one of the things I was doing is really examining the intention from where my speech was arising. What was the motivation behind what I was saying in my interactions with people? Was I speaking from a place of love or or kindness, speaking from a place of of hurt or or ill will? And I, um, I did this for actually about two years really interested in this uh, motivation for my speech. And, and in the beginning, I thought, well, 
I had been practicing for some years, and that that probably my motivations were pretty good. I had a pretty good sense of of, of not wanting to hurt myself or others, but I was appalled, actually, to find out how often I really wanted to hurt from a place of my own pain, from a place of my own dukkha. I wanted to get back, kind of a revengeful kind of attitude that if I hurt, you're going to hurt. And, and to see that was really quite shocking. And I, it was, I was happy. It brought us some, some uh, sukha to see it, but it was very, very shocking to know that the, the, the depth of this um, pain that I was feeling in myself that I wanted to inflict on others. And so through the mindfulness, through being, be, bringing mindfulness to that, I was, be, was able to begin to transform that, to um, use the practice of paying attention and pausing, kind of stopping before I followed through with that particular communication or, or action in some way. So we may think that, well, I'm not acting out of a place of pain and causing more pain. And yet these, these mind states, these, these patterns are very, can be very subtle. And that's why our, it's so important for us to pay attention. And this morning we started looking at our intentions and that, that impulse to, to act or to move. Um, we can begin to use that practice in our daily life to actually see what's giving rise to certain uh, uh, speech and action. When we are envious of other people for what they have, we want what they have, this place of pain in our own heart, and then we act out, can act out in that, from that place of envy or jealousy. Just dukkha, dukkha here, dukkha later. There's, there's no relief from that. So reflecting on this, we can see how even though we think these actions are going to make us feel better, that's, that's where the impulse arises from some deeply in there. Somehow we do think it's going to make us feel better, but we don't see that there is this confusion and it just causes more pain. There's no possibility of happiness. This is, it's wrong view. It's, there's ignorance here. There's, it's, not, it's not clear seeing. So the first one, dukkha now, dukkha later. The second one, sukha now, dukkha later. Suppose there were a bronze cup of beverage possessing a good color, smell, and taste, but it was mixed with poison. And a man came who wanted to live, not to die, who wanted pleasure and recoiled from pain. And they told him, good man, this bronze cup of beverage possesses a good color, smell, and taste, but it is mixed with poison. I lost my pace. Drink from it if you want. As you drink from it, its color, smell, and taste will agree with you. But after drinking from it, you will come to death or deadly suffering. Then... He drank from it without reflecting and did not relinquish it. 
As he drank from it, its color, smell, and taste agreed with him, but after drinking from it, he came to death or deadly suffering. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and ripens in the future as pain. Again, you know, just not thinking. There's no, like, mindfulness, wisdom, clarity. We're just in that kind of habit of mind. So in the same way, this acting out of this compulsion of habit, and then we engage in behavior that leads to more suffering. I think the obvious one here really is how we can so easily indulge in sensual pleasures without really reflecting much on 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 the consequences. And this is where their difficulties with addictions and uh, compulsive behaviors. And it's just there, there's that the, the habit is so strong that there may be some, there's a sense that the, 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 the behavior feels so good, and that's all that matters without a deeper reflection. <clears throat> Indulging in food, for example. On the three-month retreat, we have a very big celebration for Thanksgiving. And the cooks go all out, just as they did here for the New Year's. You know, but they they really go all out. I mean, they put out, you know, wonderful, wonderful food. And at the same meal, they also put out the pies. Now, you know, that's... At least they're they're a little bit more sane here at Spirit Rock, where the pies were not put out when the big meal was put out. So you can kind of, they could help you control your behavior a little bit. But I remember in the first time that I sat a three-month course when the food was put out at Thanksgiving, I had no way to restrain myself. I completely indulged. You know, I'd been sitting for about what about six weeks, seven weeks, so deprived, you know, everything taken away, really. And then they put out this huge spread of food with, you know, not only pie, but ice cream with the pie, you know, and whipped cream. I mean, I think they don't maybe put out ice cream anymore. They know it, it's the yogis can't help themselves, you know. And, and then um, I remember afterwards, I was so, I was in so much pain. I was in so much physical pain. And if you, I don't know if you've had this experience <laughs> of stuffing yourselves, and, and then it's, it, it lasted for about two hours or three hours. The, you know, the eating of it lasted for, what, 20 minutes? <laughs> and then the, the, the bloatedness and the indigestion and the pain, I, I really learned from that. I mean, I learned it's not worth it, you know? It really was one of the, the most painful experiences I had around indulging. It's just, again, that confusion. It's confusion around where happiness will lie. Again, it's this, the breaking of the, of the five precepts that we, like the indulging in sexual pleasure. You know, yes, it's, it's pleasurable. It feels good in the moment. It's wonderful. But if we're not reflecting on the consequences of our action, there's tremendous pain, tremendous dukkha that can arise from that, depending on the situation that we're involved in. So, so when it comes to the sensual pleasures, it takes a tremendous amount of reflection. 
so that we're not just continuing to cause more harm to ourselves and to other people. Pleasure from intoxicants, you know, from, from drinking or, or doing, doing too many drugs. Um, I mean, in college, in the early, early days, in, in my 20s, you know, that was what we did. We got drunk, you know, that it was the big thing. And um, there was no awareness, there's no wisdom about that. And how the, so, I was so sick, you know, just for, you know, just keep going on and on and on. And yeah, it was great, you know, having a good time and, you know, all that in the moment. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? And I think that's why the five ethical guidelines are really so helpful for us because it helps us restrain the mind when there isn't enough mindfulness and wisdom to really support that kind of reflection. It gives us a certain structure to help us, a kind of a grid, and say, what? Be careful in these particular ways. Because otherwise, it's just impossible to come to any balance of mind or, or to really experience a deeper quality of, of that sweet contentment, that ease of happiness when we're more in balance in our lives. So sukha now, dukkha later. The, now, these first two really are the ones that reinforce the sense of self. They reinforce the sense of self because we're acting out of the habits of of greed and ill will and confusion. And that just gets repeated. It's more and more repetition. So the sense of self really gets much more solidified and the habits get more solidified. And we're not, there's really very little possibility of transformation without a deeper reflection on what's happening. So the next two actually show us how, how the transfer, transformation begins. So dukkha now, sukha later. Right? Suppose there were fermented urine <laughs> mixed with various medicines. Now this was probably a healing potion back in those days, you know, fermented urine. So suppose there there were fermented urine mixed with various medicines and a man came sick with jaundice and they told him, good man, this fermented urine is mixed with various medicines. Drink from it if you want. As you drink from it, its color, smell, and taste will not agree with you, but after drinking from it, you will be well. Then she drank from it after reflecting and did not relinquish it. As she drank from it, its color, taste, and smell did not agree with her, but after drinking from it, she became well. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is painful now and ripens in the future as pleasure. So this is the suffering or the dukkha that leads to the end of dukkha. And so we can really start right here, looking to see how this one fits in our lives, because the meditation retreat has a lot of dukkha, right? When you're sitting, when you're doing your meditation, it's not just sukkha. In fact, a lot of people feel a lot of 
pain, a lot of difficulty, a lot of unease as they're going through for all many different reasons, physical, mental, emotional. Not everybody. Some people get a good retreat (laughs) every now and then. I'm saying that lightly as if that's, you know, not having the dukkha is, is a good retreat. You know, but some people get, you know, more peace and ease and are touching into more uh, experiences of, of, of pleasure. But for the most part, people feel a lot of dukkha when they come and sit a meditation retreat. And yet we do it because there's some, we, there's some knowing that something pleasurable or some happiness, some ease, some, some easing up of the pain is going to come. There's a faith usually based on some evidence, some direct evidence that we have experienced from the past that keeps us going, keeps us going, even through the pain, even through the hardship. Sometimes I feel, as a teacher, I feel like a cheerleader, you know, because people have such a hard time when I'm saying, keep going, keep going, you know, it's going to get better, it's going to be okay. You know, and, and just reminding or reflecting back that truth that you already know. You know, yeah, we're doing this because this is what breaks up the suffering. This is what, what cre- causes the suffering to drop away. So we're breaking those habits here. We're breaking the automatic, the, the, that on switch. We're finding the off switch so that we're not just operating uh, out of these habitual tendencies all the time, but through the methods and the techniques, we're finding ways to interrupt that momentum of habit. In the early years, I sat a, a, a 20-day retreat with uh, U Pandita Sayadaw from Burma. In we were on the Big Island in Hawaii at this time, and um, Upandita encouraged us to sleep for four hours a night. And it was really, this was really part of the deal, you know, was to cut way, way back on sleep so that we were practicing consciously for 20 hours a day and, you know, resting for four hours a day. And I really wanted to try that, you know, but, oh, that was hard. No, I had, it was early, earlier in the days of my practice, and I just would continually feel it was so much pain, so much dukkha from, when I would wake up in the morning, wake up at, say, go to bed like at 11, wake up at 3, the alarm would go off. I said, no, no, I don't want to get up. Oh, it's like anything but getting up. And at the time, I had two roommates, and they were really gung-ho, you know? The alarm would go off, and they would jump out of bed, and, well, actually, one would jump out of bed, and the other one was her friend, and then she would go over the bed and drag her friend out of bed. I didn't actually know them very well, so she didn't do that to me. But, <laughs> and I would, you know, be witnessing this kind of, you know, getting going, and I'd be lying there going, no, I just don't think I can do it. And I tried. I, I, I think I got down to about five hours, you know, but it was painful and a lot of dukkha. I didn't like it at all. And yet even 
during the retreat, I could feel a transformation happening. I could feel this whole shift happening in my relationship to sleepiness and tiredness and sleep itself. That it, it just wasn't what I thought it was. I, could, I learned to sit and just to feel tired or to feel dull and not have so much aversion to it. Not, it was, I was shooting so many darts, you know, the second and the third and the fourth arrow, judging myself, oh, I should be more clear, I should be more bright, you know, and, and just like, no, that's not what's happening on four hours of sleep or five hours of sleep. And just really allowing myself to feel the, uh, the tiredness and the allowing myself to be dull and, and not very clear and sharp. And what happened is I, I started to feel, because there was the intention to bring some awareness to my experience, I started to feel that sweetness that was coming through being present with myself, just as I was. And then this kind of sleepy, kind of dull state of mind started to feel very sweet. I like, it was kind of very, I liked it. This whole shift happened in my relationship to sleep. It's completely unexpected. But in the beginning, the first week, two weeks, very, very painful for me. But this is what we're doing. We're breaking through the fixed ideas about what we think about mind states and feelings and ourselves and our experiences and all that, all the meaning that we make out of it. So it, we start to break up that momentum of, of, of our, the way that we, we are in, in, in our life. Whether it's sitting with men, mental pain, sitting with physical pain, that staying present, staying present and not turning away, staying connected with ourselves even though it's very, very painful sometimes. Sukha later, you know, happiness later, the pleasure comes later. Sometimes even the restraint and renunciation that's needed in keeping the five precepts, particularly in our, da- in our daily life, keeping the precepts of not um, uh, causing harm, to ourselves and others through those particular actions, particularly if we have some addictive uh, tendencies and we're saying making a commitment and uh, setting clear uh, intentions for ourselves. It's painful to do that sometimes, but yet the payoff is great. There was one woman who came to the she, she came to the second part of the three month course. She came for six weeks and she came to my first interview after three or four days and said that she had given up uh, uh, three packs of cigarettes a day, cold turkey, on this retreat. And she did it. But you can bet that was a lot of what she was dealing with. You know, she she wanted to do it. That was very, very painful, physically, emotionally, mentally, and she went through it. Never really brought it up again as the, as the weeks went on. There's another yogi who was working in the kitchen as a work retreatant, and she would just get so triggered by 
the people in the kitchen, what they were doing and how the yogis were washing the pots and how they were cutting vegetables and what they were kind of communicating to each other. And oh, Annie, just so angry. She just would get so, so triggered and come to the interviews and just talk about how angry she was when she saw this yogi doing this and that yogi doing that. And I finally said, well, is that getting you anywhere? You know, is it like, is that, how, is that serving you really to be just stewing in your anger around this? I said, why don't you just try turning your attention away, not looking, not, not watching everything that's going on in the kitchen. You know, just stay a little bit more contained. Use, use a little bit more restraint with your eyes and your, your body, your senses, and see what happens. And she did that, and it was great for her. She just saw how her she was just pulled out to look at things that created more aversion for her. And as she used some restraint around her eyes, she actually felt more calm. She felt more at ease. She didn't have to get as involved as she was getting in all the interpretations that she had about what, what was going on for everybody. She stayed more with herself. So that kind of restraint, pulling in, because the habit wants to go out, but shifting the habit there. So this is what brings, starts to bring more balance, brings more ease, brings more content, inner contentment, more peace, more sukha. So the last one, sukha now, sukha later. Suppose there were curd, yogurt, yogurt, Honey, ghee, melted butter, molasses, all mixed together, and a, and that, which is another medicinal remedy. And a man with dysentery came, and they told him, Good man, this is curd, honey, ghee, and molasses mixed together. Drink from it if you want. As you drink from it, its color, smell, and taste will agree with you. And after drinking from it, you will be well. Then he drank from it after reflecting and did not relinquish it. As he drank from it, its color, mm-mm. where's the rest of it? <laughs> oh, there it is. No, I don't have it. But I think we, can, we know what happened. We know the end of the story. <laughs> As he drank from it, its color, its smell, it's um, uh, whatever that is, uh, taste, <laughs> were agreeable, and he became well. You know? This is the fourth way of undertaking things. And pleasure that ripens into pleasure in the future. And so, really, the following the Buddha's way, following the Buddha's way, engaging the teaching of engaging in wholesome actions that bring more pleasure. This, this teaching of cultivating joy and compassion and generosity and kindness from a place of happiness, from a place of ease, from a place of connection with our goodness, following that inclination, following the pull to 
engage in acts that bring about more happiness, that bring about more pleasure, more ease. This is this, this teaching, feeling happy. One abstains from things that bring unhappiness. And then an effortless quality arises from the heart, and then we follow those inclinations from a place of sukha, bringing more sukha. Cultivating generosity, dana, dana and pali, this impulse to want to give, to offer, to share of our, what we have, of our, of our possessions, of our good fortune, from this place of happiness brings more happiness. We say that when an impulse of generosity arises in your mind, when an impulse or a thought of generosity arises, follow that. Don't cut it off. Oh, it's just a thought. It's just a thought. Follow that. That inclination that, is, that feels good brings even more pleasure, more happiness that thought or inclination to do something kind for somebody, to call somebody who's not feeling well, or to uh, spend time with somebody who's having some difficulty, or to um, uh, random acts of kindness, from that place of feeling good, bringing more goodness to ourselves or to others. This generating in this way acts of compassion. And what happens here, too, is that we're not as consumed in our self-preoccupation. In the first two ways of undertaking things, it's all about me. It's about me. It's about me and what's going to happen for me and what I'm going to get. And, but as we, as we start to turn towards the causes and conditions that bring about more happiness, it's also a letting go of that self-preoccupation. We're not just thinking about what's in it for me. The heart, the heart starts to open. And then these beautiful qualities of the heart start to be expressed, which just generates even more happiness. It's a, a, a self-fulfilling wish in a way. It just keeps cycling more and more of what we really want. It's a very beautiful way of looking at it. So the Buddha felt that this was such an important teaching. He said that it could dispel darkness. He uses this simile. He says, just as in autumn, in the last month of the rainy season, when the sky is clear and cloudless, The sun rises above the earth, dispelling all darkness from space with its shining and beaming and radiance. So, too, the way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and ripens in the future as pleasure dispels with its shining and beaming and radiance any other teaching. This is is a way for us to bring about that which we want more of, our desire for more (coughs) happiness and ease and goodness. 
by deeply reflecting on the consequences of our choices that we're making. This is from uh, the Dhammapada, and I'm going to read, this is uh, Gill's um, translation, his new translation of, a, of, the, of, a, of the Buddha Buddhist classic, the Dhammapada, from the Buddhist teachings. In the first one, it says, All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. That's the way it is. That's the law. That's the dharma, the way things are. That's what we're practicing. That's what we're attempting to cultivate. Transforming these habits of mind by bringing mindfulness and wisdom to what's happening moment to moment so that we can actually have some understanding of what's moving, what's propelling us, what's, what's conditioning us to act and speak and be a particular way because this is what brings about our transformation. Habits get reinforced by repetition and when there's little mindfulness or wisdom involved. We're just repeating the same thing again and again and again. There's this um, quote um, that I like to read. It's, it, you may have heard this before. It's about insanity. It goes like this. Insanity is, the definition of insanity is repeating the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. That's what a lot of us feel. We feel a little bit insane. We just repeat the same thing over and over again, but we think something different is going to happen and don't understand why something different isn't happening. So we want to do things differently, but we have to actually look and see what is it that we're doing so that we can bring about some change. So we set our intention We set a clear intention, but then we actually have to let go of the result. We can't control what's going to happen, but we can set the intention. This is a a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh where he says, If I lose my direction, I have to look for the North Star and I go north. That does not mean that I I expect to arrive at the North Star. I just want to go in that direction. So what the Buddha is pointing to, he says, just go in this direction. He's kind of giving us a map. He's giving us a direction. Where we actually wind up, we don't know. We don't know. But if you can can hear through this, um, the, the similes, a piece where kind of comes out here, he says, again and again in each one, he says, drink from it if you like. He's not saying you've got to drink from this or or else. He's saying, 
here's something for you. Drink from it if you like. And if you don't like, that's fine. I just, I love that kind of attitude. It's really just a, it's an offer. It's an invitation for us, if we like. If this is something that resonates for us, we take it. Doesn't, we let it go. But there is a clear direction for us. But we follow the path, we follow the direction, but constantly, moment, every moment, we need to let go. Intention and letting go are like two sides of the same coin. Intentions on one side, letting go is on the other, and they both exist together, intending and letting go, intending and letting go. We can't control what's going to happen, but we can have clear intentions. And this is, the, this is where our practice of mindfulness and the cultivation of wisdom is so important for this transformation. So we ask, and this is a good time, the beginning of the year, the beginning of this new year, we can really perhaps reflect to, uh, f- reflect for yourself, what are you setting in motion? What are you setting in motion? Each one of you are setting something in motion. By being here on this retreat, you're clearly making a statement to yourself. You're sending a message to yourself of what you're setting in motion. It's a beautiful way to start the year by sitting in silence with a community of people who are committed to awakening. You're setting this in motion. And so we can look more deeply, kind of even review or kind of reflect on our year. What are we setting in motion? Because you are setting something in motion. And it's, be- it's good if we can make that conscious rather than just having it be habitual or automatic or you know, the same, same old, same old. Like, this is how we bring about our transformation. And we can do it. Gil said the other night, the Buddha said, if I didn't think you could do it, I would not ask you. I would not ask you. And I want to end with this um, little story that I received this email um, a little while ago from a friend in New Zealand. And I want to read this just as kind of inspiring for me, just in terms of kind of an inspiration, really, of what's possible for us as beings, living, living beings. This is about a little tiny bird, a uh, gotwit bird. And my friend wrote this. He said, oh, it's such a sweet little planet we are part of. You know, I was at Miranda Bird Sanctuary, this is in New Zealand, on a course last week, and the birds had just arrived from Siberia. One bird with a tracker, E7, on it had flown 30,000 kilometers in one year. Now, what's what's 30,000 kilometers in miles? Does anybody know that? 22,000 miles. All right. This little bird flew 22,000 miles in one year. That's three quarters of the way right around the planet for a little bird that weighs less than a half a pound. So 
Uh, Massey University ecologist Phil Batley says E7 broke her own record for the longest flight of 16 tagged birds on the journey north to breed. In a round journey of nearly 22,000 miles, she flew to Yukon, Alaska to breed with a five-week refueling stopover in China, breaking her own record on the direct flight back to New Zealand at the weekend. At more than 10,000 kilometers, uh, 10,000 miles, the six-day southern migration of the godwit is thought to be the longest nonstop flight of any bird. She left there about mid-July and went to the mudflats on the edge of the Yukon Delta where she refueled again, getting nice and fat until the end of August. Dr. Batley said the southward migration of the Gotwit from Alaska to New Zealand was thought to be the longest nonstop migration of any bird. She had the option to fly down to the Alaskan Peninsula and take off from about 500 kilometers further south, but she didn't do that. This indicates the long journey is not such a problem to her or that she's needing to find a shorter route. Dr. Batley said E7 was back at her favorite spot at Miranda after becoming the first godwit to have her migration monitored by satellite, but had confounded any attempts to photograph her after her epic journey. <laughs> said, unfortunately, it's a muddy spot with no access, so while it would be nice to have pictures, we just haven't been able to photograph her. Dr. Batley said E7 probably arrived late Friday night. <laughs> and it just, it really shows, you know, that what's possible. It just, it, it boggles the mind, this nature that we are part of. And so, listening to these teachings and reflecting on what's possible for us to transform our heart here and now when we take these teachings deeply into our heart. Let's sit for just a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.